but you don't necessarily have to turn there. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, and then we'll pray. We have uh, quite a bit to pray about this morning, and I'll just tell you about that while you're turning in your copy of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, One thing to know is that uh, the state trooper, Dean Atkinson, who was shot a couple of weeks ago, surprisingly early, sometime between 2.30 and 3.30, and kind of a a parade is being organized um, to just show support for him. So the route that they're taking into town and asking people to be out there for is uh, this, I think he's got a motorcade kind of thing going. It's going to get off Highway 12 at Myra, down to Dow's Military, and to the roundabout. And so if you're around between 2.30 and 3.30, You've got your lawn chairs out already for Fall Fest tonight. Just go plop one down out there. It's a great place to meet some people in the community who you don't know, to to practice some of the things that that we're talking about and spend some time with some folks, uh, but to show show some support for him as well. We're going to continue to pray for Paul and Diana Mayhew this morning as they're kind of our missionaries this month that we are uh, are praying for. Uh, But also, we're going to pray this morning for Sue Nafziger. Sue and Sandy are some of our missionaries um, uh, down. They work with Cadence International, but they're they're actually in Las Vegas right now. Um, But uh, Sandy let us know that his wife Sue was, uh, was in the hospital and had her gallbladder removed and then had an infection afterwards. And then if you've been noticing in the, um, we've sent out a whole bunch of emails about Jessica Monk who had surgery, then had some complications and blood clots and got life flighted back to Portland for that and then came home. Well, it turns out uh, maybe one of those blood clots cut off some su- blood supply to her spleen and so she's back in the hospital again. Um, she's there now. Uh, Trudy, I think, is working on a meal train to, to take some meals to Jesse and Kenny this week as she recovers. So uh, if you haven't seen that email come out yet, uh, pay attention for it, and we'll, we'll take them some, uh, some meals. And then I'm, uh, I'm kind of hobbling a little bit today. I don't normally wear Birkenstocks to preach in, but I've got an infection in my foot that's, uh, that's just been giving me trouble all weekend, and so I would appreciate your prayers there as well. Well, let me read to you uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and Revelation 4, 8, and then we will pray. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And similarly in Revelation chapter 4 verse 8, we see that the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
Heavenly Father, we, uh, we confess that you are a holy God. We confess that in, in many ways and in, in places we don't, even, uh, we don't even know what it means that you're holiness or, or the extent of your holiness. And so, Father, would you impress upon us today a picture of what it means that, that you are holy, but not just that we would understand who you are and that you are holy, but, Lord, that we would, we would delight in your holiness, that we would love your holiness. Lord, that we would find you in your holiness to be supremely beautiful and glorious above all things. And so would you show yourself to us in your word today? Father, we want to, uh, we want to pray for several things going on this morning. Lord, we pray for, uh, for Jessica as she's in the hospital. And uh, we just ask for uh, good care and, and uh, efficient treatment in order to be able to get her uh, back on her feet and going well and taking care of her family. Lord, we pray for uh, especially uh, little Kenny, but also Jesse, that you would just comfort them in this time when... Um, uh, when Jessica's in the hospital and going through all these difficulties, Lord. And so we just, uh, we just pray for her healing. And we, um, we thank you that we've had so many opportunities to, uh, to pray for healing. Those aren't the, the, the opportunities that we th- thank you for. But in those opportunities, we have seen you work in amazing ways from, from Will having no long-term anything in his jaw to worry about to uh, to, to Dean Atkinson, not only uh, looking like he's going to have little to no long-term effect from being shot twice in the face, but he's coming home way earlier than we understood. And uh, we just thank you that, that we get to see you uh, at work and answering uh, our prayers in, in ways that, um, that we've asked you to. That you would hear our prayers at all is a wonder, but that you would delight yourself to, to give us the desires of our heart, especially when you are the desire of our heart is, is amazing, Lord. And so we just thank you that you, uh, that you hear us and that you delight to give us uh, every good thing. Lord, we want to pray for uh, Sue Nafziger and for her recovery from this infection and the antibiotics and, uh, and, and just uh, we pray for a speedy recovery and for her to be back to, uh, to 100% and feeling well soon. Lord, we also want to pray for uh, the Mayhews, as we continue to pray for them this month, Lord, we thank you that this month they will be here with us for our missions fair. Lord, I pray that you would uh, that you would give us a commitment to be here to hear from our missionaries to support their work and to, and the spread of the gospel. Lord, we uh, we we must as a church care for the lost not only locally but abroad. And so, as we have several of our missionaries coming to be with us this month, Lord, we pray that um, that they would be encouraged. Uh, and that you would do great things in instructing us as they, uh, as they tell us about what you're doing through them uh, all over the world, Lord. And so we, uh, we just thank you that they're going to be with us. Lord, as they're retiring at the end of this year and handing off ministry to other people and uh, going through the difficult, no doubt, emotional process of letting go of a ministry that you have loved and cared for, we pray that you would uh, work, off the de- work out the details of handing off that ministry and, and that you would just be glorified, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen churches through uh, not only the ministry that they do from now to the end of the year, but that you will, that you will continue to do through others who, who pick up that work. And so, uh, Lord, we just thank you for all that you have done to strengthen churches around the globe and will continue to do in, in their absence because you, uh, you love your church more than we could ever imagine and, and you bought us with 
your own blood. What a, what a wonderful thing, Lord. May we never forget uh, that, that no matter how much we love your church, no matter how much we serve your church, no matter how much concern well, we, we may have for your church, uh, that it, it pales in comparison to your love and affection and delight in your people whom you have purchased for yourself. And so um, we just thank you for all that you're doing, Lord. Again, we ask that you would uh, just give us open eyes and soft hearts to hear, understand, receive your word, and, uh, and to be conformed into the image of Christ. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. By way of reminder, as we kind of have these body life Sundays uh, with communion and, and various other ministry uh, uh, activities in, in the first Sunday service of the month, we're going to continue in our, ser- uh, our series on the attributes of God, looking at who God is. And last month, having looked at why we must think rightly about God and why it's, it's the ultimate question before us as a church is, uh, do we think rightly about God? Because if we don't think rightly about God, we can't worship rightly. Uh, uh, we can't worship God rightly. We can't share God rightly. What we think to be true about God and the accuracy of the truthfulness of our thoughts about God is the most important question ever in front of the church. And so we want to continue today, and I want to start with holiness. I want to start with holiness because I believe it is the prime attribute of God. In all things, it is his defining attribute. He is holy in his love and in his justice and in his mercy and in his grace. It is the absolute and ultimate attribute of God that 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 connects to all others. And we're going to hear from a lot of, of dead guys today as they speak about the holiness of God. But I feel a little bit like Leonardo da Vinci this morning. In that, when he painted the, the Lord's Supper, the, the Last Supper, the, that famous painting of Jesus and the disciples at, at the table, he, um, he, he started this painting and he found it very difficult to paint the faces of the people. And so he painted most of the painting and left all of the faces blank. He then filled in all of the faces except Jesus. And when he went to attempt to paint the face of Jesus, he ended up just quickly painting a face and said, I can't paint him, it's useless. He felt that there was no way he could capture the person and the beauty of Christ in this painting. And to stand here before you and and try to explain the holiness of God in a shortened sermon so that we can do other things that are also important today. I don't want to neglect any of those things either. I feel a little bit like da Vinci saying, it's it's useless. I, I can't paint this picture for you. But I will still try. J. Howe, a 1600s Puritan, one of our old dead guys, said this of God's holiness. He said, this may, be, this may be said to be a transcendental attribute. That is, as it were, runs through the rest and casts luster upon them. It is an attribute of attributes. In other words, in all of the attributes of God, he is holy. As I've said, in his love, in his mercy, 
in his justice, in his wrath, in his grace, in every uh, of his attributes. He is holy. The word itself, whether we can consider Hebrew or Greek, simply means to be set apart. And I would encourage us to understand today that that idea cannot be taken too far. Whatever it is we know to be true about ourselves as men and women created in the image of God, he is set apart from that. We are dependent upon him for life, for breath, for salvation, for all things. We, we'll get to an attribute of his called his, his aseity, which means he needs nothing from anyone at any time. Everything that he needs to be both, uh, to, to both exist and to be fully happy in himself is within himself. We're going to look at, at, at many of these attributes, but, but he is set apart from us in that sense that we need things from him and other people. He needs nothing. We are creaturely and dependent and limited. I think all of us want to pretend like we're limitless, but none of us are limitless. And in that, he is set apart. There is nothing about him except in the person of Christ, which is the wonder of who Jesus is, that is created. He is the creator. He is the giver. He is set apart in every way from us. And it is his holiness, his set-apartness, his otherness, particularly his holiness from sin that makes him beautiful. Listen to Stephen Charnock, another 1600s Puritan. He said, and these are all biblical images, by the way. He's drawing on, on Scripture. Power is God's hand or arm. So when, when, the new, when, the, when the authors of Scripture wanted to, talk, to write about God being powerful, they may speak of his hand. His, the, the, the prophets would say, his arm is not short. So these are all drawn on biblical imagery. Power is God's hand or arm. Omniscience, his eye. Mercy, his bowels or his heart. Eternity, his duration. But holiness is his beauty. It is his holiness that makes us find him beautiful. And as we see from Isaiah 6 to Revelation, it is his holiness that is the sole attribute, or maybe not sole, but the primary attribute of God that gets sung about in heaven. There, the, the, heaven is not declaring his love, 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 or his kindness, kindness, kindness. But heaven delights to sing over God that he is holy, holy, holy. And while we're incredibly constrained for time today, I want to give us two definitions of holiness that might help us to understand God better. First, as mentioned already in, in just what the word means, holiness is to be set apart. Holiness is to be set apart. 
uh, from, from vessels used in temple worship that were not allowed to, to be used for common things, being described as holy because they were set apart. God is set apart. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11 declares, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Of course, the answer being rhetorical is no one. No one is like God. No one is majestic in holiness as he is. No one is awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders as he is. But I want to turn our attention now to see this set-apartness in Isaiah chapter 6. We see here that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a, upon a throne. It's interesting to me, this is one of four biblical authors who, uh, who have visions of God, who see him in heaven. John, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Paul. None of them were near-death experiences, by the way. But in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. And if you remember from last week, I said the great, the great question before the Old Testament authors was, who gets to see God? And here Isaiah gets to see God. And he is high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of, of, of the king's robe, which was the part that drug on the ground behind him, the, the length of the train was indicative of the size of the rule of the king. The smaller your kingdom, the shorter your train. The larger your kingdom, the larger your train. And so when Isaiah tells us the train of his robe filled the temple, this is not the temple on earth. This is the temple in heaven of which the temple on earth was a mere copy and representative of. And the train of the Lord filled the temple. He is the ruler over all things. There is no train this long, no high, nor lifted up as this king. He rules over all things. It is an absolute power. And above him stood seraphim. This word in Hebrew, uh, it's, it's a plural uh, form of fiery. It literally means fiery ones. And, and, and I think they get this description because maybe a little bit like Moses' face coming down from Sinai, to be in the presence of the holiness of God is to radiate his glory. This is why I imagine Adam and Eve didn't know that they were naked. Because they walked and talked with God. And if, if the leftover glory of Moses on Sinai left his face shining so brightly that, they had to, that he had to cover his face with a veil so as not to blind the people, what must the glory have looked like radiating off of Adam and Eve as they walked and talked with him in the garden? And in that moment of sin, that glory is stripped from them. And they realize that they're naked. Not only in terms of physical nakedness, but completely vulnerable now before one another and before God. And when these fiery ones show up before anyone in Scripture, 
The immediate response, because of the brightness of, of their glory that, they get, that, they, that is radiating from them, that comes from God, these fiery ones, people fall down and they have to stand up and say, nope, I'm not God, don't worship me. These are glorious beings. And despite that fact, despite the fact that they get described as fiery ones, they each have six wings. With two, they cover their face. This should be understood as an act of humility before God. With two, they cover their feet. This should be seen as servitude to God. And with two, they flew. That is, they are ready at any given moment to go. They are humble and servile and ready to serve. And one called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Now in Hebrew, when you stack words like this, it is for emphasis. It would read somewhat like this in English. Holy, holier, holiest is the Lord of hosts. Hosts, tzavaoth, is, is armies. This is where we get the term God of angel armies from. He is the holy, holier, holiest Lord, Yahweh, God over all the armies of heaven and the whole earth is filled with his glory. This is who God is. He is holy. He is set apart from all things. Even the most fiery of beings must hide themselves in humility and servitude before him. And then we come to the problem And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, woe is me, I'm dead, I'm I'm cursed, I'm done, I'm gone, I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, which is always indicative of the heart. It's not just that Isaiah has unclean lips. So what comes out of his lips is indicative of what's in his heart. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And why am I undone? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If you have come here this morning to see who God is, being confronted with his holiness, the only appropriate response is I'm dead. I'm done, I'm gone. Because we we cannot see the purity of his holiness without being, and of his set-apartness without being undone and seeing our wretchedness. But, fortunately, this does not end there. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs, from the altar, this would have drawn imagery to, to, the first, to, to the original readers of this text of coals being taken from the altar where sacrifices were made. A fire that was lit initially in the tabernacle by God himself. When fire comes down from heaven and lights this fire, and one of the jobs of the priest was to make sure it never went out. Even as the tabernacle traveled, they took that fire with them. This would have drawn imagery of of this fire prepared for burnt offerings 
that was provided by God. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And what Isaiah is showing us here is, is that, that this salvation, this forgiveness of sin, when we come face to face with the holiness of God and therefore our own depravity, the only way out, the only way forgiveness may come is that it be provided by God from above. This is the holy God who is set apart from all things. But secondly, and, and it's already, we've touched on this throughout here, holiness is not just to be set apart, but particularly to be set apart from sin. So holiness is moral perfection. It is the, the absolute moral perfection of God. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There is no sin in God. There is no wrongdoing in God. Don't make the mistake of thinking that there is no sin in God because God is just allowed to do whatever he wants because he is God. Certainly, Scripture presents us with a God who gets to play by different rules than we do. He gets to give life and take it away. We do not. He gets to rule over all things. We do not. He gets to receive worship. We do not. But when it comes to sin, we're always told that God does not, in fact, cannot sin. Multiple times in the New Testament, we're told that God cannot lie. Because God is truth and therefore he cannot lie. It's not that he could lie and it would be okay. It's that he cannot lie. Can God do anything? No. Because he cannot sin. Why? Because he is holy. He is absolutely set apart from everything that is sinful. He is moral perfection. He is light and in him is no darkness at all. And he, in fact, hates sin. Listen to A.W. Pink. He's still an old dead guy, but not quite as old and dead. Uh, but A.W. Pink said this, The God which the vast majority of professing Christians love is looked upon very much like an, like an indulgent old man who himself has no relish for folly, but leniently winks at the discretions of youth. But the word says, quoting Psalm 5.5, Thou hatest all the workers of iniquity. I admit I have to struggle with this passage because a, a common a phrase you'll hear in church circles is that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. And Psalm 5.5 says, you hate all workers of iniquity. Notice that it doesn't just say he hates the sin. He hates the workers of sin. He hates anyone who violates his holiness. And we are all probably getting a little uncomfortable in our seats. If you're not, you should be. We should be like Isaiah saying, woe is me. I'm undone. Because if God hates workers of sin, and certainly I am a worker of sin, God must hate me. 
But Pink goes on to say, but blessed be his name, that which his holiness demanded, his grace has provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he does demand our moral perfection. The the command in Scripture is not just to be holy because he is holy, but to be holy like he is holy. To be holy in the same way that he is holy. And that demand of our holiness, which every single one of us has fallen short of, God's grace has provided in Jesus Christ our Lord. He has taken our shame and given us his glory. He has gone to the cross and paid the debt of our sin, the death that we owed, the the, the debt of death that his holiness demanded for our sinfulness. And he paid it all, and his grace provided it in the Lord Jesus Christ. But pink goes on from there. If you don't read old dead guys, oh, you should. Pink says this, God has often forgiven sinners, but he never forgives sin. I'm going to read that again. God has often forgiven sinners, but he never forgives sin. And the sinner is only forgiven on the grounds of another having borne his punishment. For without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Oh, brothers and sisters, many a sinner has been forgiven. But no sin has ever been forgiven. How is it possible that sinners be forgiven, but sin not forgiven? Because God didn't just say, your sin is forgiven, I'm going to let it all go. No, he became one of us. He lived the holy life that his holiness demanded. And then he died in our place by shedding his blood to make atonement for our sin, to pay for our sin, that the due punishment of our sin might be realized upon Christ. Let that sink in for a moment. That while you may be forgiven and stand before God in the perfect holiness of Christ that has been given to you through faith, Not a single one of your sins has ever been forgiven. They have only been paid for so that you might be forgiven. He is absolute perfection. Who has been absolute perfection in our place. Because he has received absolute punishment in our place. How do we respond to this knowledge of the holiness of God? How do we respond to who he is and what he has done for us? I think there's only two responses. Number one is holiness. It's what scripture calls for over and over and over again. I think it's worth noting That what scripture calls for in our lives is not not merely elevated admiration. It's not eloquent speech. It's not pompous service. It's not induced emotionalism. 
It's holiness. And the church has rapidly forgot the demand of holiness on our lives in the name of authenticity. To be sure, and as we looked at last week in the Beatitudes, there's no value in being two-faced. We can, we can be honest about our sin. We can be authentic with one another and with the Lord. We can receive his grace. We can invite people in, protected by the gospel, to know us and our sin and to help us in that process. But at no point in that process do we get to just say, well, I'm authentic and so I'm just okay with my sin. Because scripture never is. Because while we may be forgiven, that sin is not. We should be scared of the day in our lives when a comfort with our sin and and therefore a comfort with the shame and reproach gladly borne by Christ on our behalf is, is just okay. Where in your life do you tolerate sin? Where do you go? It's not, it's not a big deal. Because it's, it's just all forgiven. It's already paid for. Where, where are you quick to, to spite the cross in that way? Where do you make excuses? I'm really good at making excuses. My internal lawyer is excellent. And I can justify just about anything. Where do you make excuses? I think one of the big questions before us, especially in our day and age, is where do we entertain ourselves with sin? When we turn on the TV or go to the movie theater, or even just look at our cell phone, where do we entertain ourselves with sin? The first and the prime response to the holiness of God is to strive for the holiness of God with which no one, without which no one will see him. But secondly, and we see this in Isaiah chapter 6, our second response is to go. Because after coming face to face with God's holiness and, and our own depravity and the forgiveness of God in Christ, notice what happens next in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. The the, the only proper response to the holiness of God is not just to live holy lives, but to proclaim the holiness of God. Notice what it says, holy, holy, holy is The Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Now that we know that God is holy, the only response, the only right response other than our own holiness, having had our lips and our hearts cleansed by God from a guilty conscience, is to go out and proclaim the holiness of God that the whole earth might be filled with his glory. That the whole earth might know the holy God 
whom we serve. He is set apart in every way from his creation as creator. And he is absolute moral perfection. I would remind us of these two quotes that I shared at the beginning in closing. As they may contain new value or have new value to you. This, that is his holiness, may be said to be a transcendent attribute. That, as it were, runs through the rest, casts luster upon him. It is an attribute of attributes. And if power is God's hand or arm, and omniscience his eye, and mercy his bowels or his heart, and eternity his duration, then holiness is his beauty. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not in any way tainted by sin as we are. You have not, you have never lied, you have never sinned, and you never will sin against us. Lord, you're the the only person in, in all that exists that we know will never sin against us and indeed can never sin against us. But God, would you give us a a delight in your holiness? Would you give us a a joy and a sincere sincere pleasure in seeing your beauty, in seeing your majesty, in seeing your holiness, that, that in you is not only absolute perfection, but absolute power. That in you it's not just perfect and complete knowledge, but perfect and complete wisdom. That there is no moment of time where where your power, where your arm is short to accomplish what you desire. That we've never once gone into any circumstance or situation or struggle or difficulty that you could not keep us out of. That we can go nowhere in life and experience nothing in life that is not under your absolute and total control. That in you is perfect power and perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom. And that all of these things, because of your holiness, get exercised towards us in love and kindness and gentleness and mercy and grace. Lord, we are undone. And and rather than simply obliterating us when confronted with your holiness, you have sent forth from heaven, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ, everything we need to receive your redemption. To have our lips and our hearts, and our lives cleansed. Would you help us, by the power of your Spirit, and by the work of your Word, to live holy lives before you? To live lives that are pleasing and honoring to you. But would you not let us do so in hiding, or in the relative safety of the church? But may we see that that not only does your holiness affect who we are and how we live, but but it sends us out 
It causes us to stand up and say, here I am, send me, that we might go and see your glory proclaimed in all the earth. May our fear of you be greater than our fear of man as we step out to do that. And Lord, may we find unspeakable joy in your goodness and presence and kindness towards us. Heavenly Father, as we move now to the Lord's table to celebrate what you have done for us in and through Christ, may it be an act that not only memorializes what you have done for us, that that remembers what you have done for us, but but may it be an act that proclaims our, our unity in Christ until you come. And so, Father, we ask your favor on this time and your work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. As we...